Welcome back for another episode of The Echo Chamber. Today, our guest is Dr. Partha Carr, at Partha S. Carr on Twitter. So without further ado, let's get straight into the episode. Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Echo Chamber. Uh, with me today is someone that I'm sure you all know already, and that is uh, Dr. Partha Carr. Hello, Partha. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, you're more than welcome. You're someone I've been um, wanting to get onto the show for quite a while because I find you a very interesting character. And like I said in my previous episodes, all I'm really interested in is speaking to people I find interesting. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, you fit the bill massively. But for people who may not know you, mm-hmm. could you just give us a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, and why you're on Twitter? Yeah, so in short, uh, so my name is Partha. I'm a consultant in diabetes specialising. I work in Portsmouth. I've been a consultant for ooh, nearly 15 years now. And... Uh, got a couple of national roles I do, which I'm sure we'll touch upon in a bit. So that's been quite an interesting journey in its own right. Uh, And apart from that, I'm on Twitter because of many reasons. I mean, I think a lot of it is related to national roles, raising awareness of diabetes or racism, etc. But I think there's a lot of good good fun. I mean, there is the occasional stupidity that you pick up. But uh, in general, I think it's been a good forum for me to, you know, share different views, talk to people and, you know, just like we are chatting now, we would probably wouldn't get to know each other if there wasn't Twitter, you know? We would have been in different parts of the country, so this is, this is quite nice. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I think it's a nice forum for me to sort of engage, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think when I first came onto Twitter, it was uh, all about FOMED, hashtag FOMED. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen a hashtag FOMED for so long now. Yeah. Uh, it's moved on to so much other stuff. But yeah, that's what it was for. Going to conferences, yeah. doing hashtags, finding a little bit more, learning quite a lot, which is quite yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, And having that instant communication with people that you wouldn't mm. necessarily have communication with and being able to find yeah. like-minded people. Yeah. And obviously it's evolved over time as well, hasn't yeah. it? And um, okay. as things do. And it's become a... Um, a big part of the discourse in medicine, um, which is interesting, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for good and for ill, right. yeah. uh, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But mm. um, yeah, tell us a little bit, Partha, about your national roles then. So you um, talk yes. about it quite a bit, don't you? Yeah, so I've got two national roles. I mean, one of them is in diabetes, and I sort of tend to focus into the technology side, safety in hospitals, and obviously that's been a big passion of mine because it's self-management, and to be honest, it's just about modernizing the NHS. All of us who use even computers at work, and then you come back home, and the disparity between what the NHS gives as far as technology and then what is actually going on in the real world is so far out. It's silly. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. I mean, uh, so that's my role in diabetes. And it's, it's you know, we have, we have been so far behind the rest of the world in just giving technology to people is silly. So that's one of the roles in tackling that. And the other one, which is more recent, which I picked up is uh, being as, uh, because the a report came out showing what I think a lot of us would probably know, but confirming what we knew about the bias based on your ethnicity. Uh, whether it's GMC referrals or getting into leadership posts. So the the, the, the role was given to try and tackle those things, uh, small challenge uh, and the rest of it. 
So, but that's been that's been an interesting ride in its own right. As I say to people that you know you can't solve everything, but I think challenging people, talking to people, etc. That's been that's been interesting. I think you also learn a lot of politics. Uh, let's put it that way. So as you go along, so no, it's it's good. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all become political animals in whatever role we do, but it becomes quite stark mm. in medicine as you uh, go up the uh, the greasy pole. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that pole is, um, as you've already alluded to, is a little bit greasier if you happen to be not within certain characteristics. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, 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 this is something I think people of colour in healthcare have known for quite a while. Yeah. And there's always been this fallacy as well, hasn't there, that, oh, the NHS, oh, it can't possibly be racist because there's so many people of colour in it. And yet, actually, every kind of objective marker that we look at seems to point to that being not true at all. I I always say, you know, there are four groups of people, you know, that you will meet, right? And it's with any data. Let's say, you know, you and I, we all do science and stuff. And whenever something new paper comes out, you'll always have people going like, oh, I love it. I want to do it. Then you'll have people going like, oh, a bit more data. Let's get nice to back it. Then a third group going like, oh, I'll do it if everybody else is doing it. And then then somebody was going, I don't do it that way. I did this this way in the 1970s. And that's the way it will be. (laughs) And to be honest, tackling racism and all that is no different. You'll have people who are irrespective of the ethnicity will go and say, I'll stand by you. I, I agree. It's not right. There are a few other people who will do what I call a lot of whataboutery. They'll go like, well, you know, is the data really crunched? And look, there's so many people, as you say, who comes from, and you go like, yes, I'm not sure what else data you want. Right? Okay, we'll go and do another set. And then we other people going like, which I call the bandwagon hoppers. Going, oh, okay, maybe. A-. And finally, I, I think we just need to realize that there will be people who, for whom this is not going to be an issue. And, for them, yeah, and I think that's what you know, privilege to an extent is about. If you don't face it, mm. it ends a problem. So you you'll find those people always turn around and go like, "Oh, there are many other priorities." I always say is that that reflects back, back as you said, health inequalities. You see that we saw that during COVID. I mean, let's be very honest. COVID taught us one thing: you don't be poor, right? <laughs> if you are poor, you're in all sorts of trouble around the globe. And even in the NHS. So, uh, you know, and then colour has its own intersectionality on it. So I think it's it's good that we at least we're talking about it. And, you know, there are a lot more people committed to it, at least verbally. <laughs> so we shall find out how much they mean. And I say this all the time in leadership roles. I, I get tired of, not tired, I, I find it quite amusing when I see people come up and go, like, this is what we're going to do. And I always use analogies from sports. And I always say, if you were a coach of a football team, you'd be sacked by now because you haven't won anything. <laughs> but, but unless, you know, having PowerPoint slides are your success of <laughs> mode, you know, it's not success. Change the data, then you've succeeded. Absolutely. Um, I think it's something that we come across quite a lot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The idea that, oh, well, things have always been this way. Mm-hmm. And so this is how we've always done things. I think I, it, it may well be one of the most dangerous phrases and dangerous attitudes oh, in any in any profession, but in healthcare in particular. Yeah. This is the way we've always done things. Yes. Um, it, it, and then getting people to change has been quite is, is quite difficult. And as you are well aware, even when presented with the data, you have very senior people turning around and go, "Well, is yeah. it no?" And you're yeah. like, yeah, it is, though. 
I think that's been the most fascinating ride in this new role because diabetes is a different kettle of fish, right? I mean, you, you've got you've got a pathology, you've got data, amputation, this, that. You're trying to sort of say, fuck, this is a completely different thing because you, you're right. You're meeting with people who will be one, and I, and I allude to that, people who are one in front, there'll be another behind the scenes, and then there'll be also people who are a bit like, well... And I'll give you one example. So recently um, I've been talking to... So this role that I've got, right? How seriously do we take this role in the NHS? So this role, Director of Equality for Medical Workforce. Now that sounds like a big, heavy arse title, right? Uh, do you know how much time I get to do it? A day. I, I mean, that, <laughs> to me, I'm sitting there going like, okay, that's all you can give me. Okay, a day a week is what I used to get when I was a clinical director of diabetes in Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think when people go like, oh, you can do this in a day a week. And I go like, well, that just shows how seriously you take it or not. Mm. If that's what you think can be done, a change over years and years of things. I think that's, that's what I say, is that you need to value people's time and give them. So, yeah, that's the irony of it all. Yeah, yeah. And part of the issue as well is, as you say, it's it's not like you're starting at a blank slate. You're having to you're having to work through decades of prejudice and yeah. bias, yeah. and getting people to recognise that institutions have been racist for yeah. decades is yeah. difficult because people were growing up in it and they immediately become defensive as yeah. well, don't they? They say, "Well, no, I, I'm not racist." I'm not yeah. racist. And I think also what happens a lot, and then you pile in the other things about religion, it just is an absolute, mm. what I call a toxic cocktail. And then, as, as I said, what, what happens a lot is what I, what I and you see that on social media, it's it's the perfect example of what about tree, right? You go like, we need to tackle racism. Somebody go like, yeah, but what about the deprived people? And you go like, yes, they're important mm. as well. But right now I'm talking about this. I'm not saying that's, and it's the same debate you have. And you go like, well, why is it a competition? It's not. You can improve all of them. So, and that's what goes on and on and on. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always love that argument against doing anything for any cause. Mm -hmm. I go, well, what, what, what about this lot? Yes. Like, you know, it, it, the, the classic example that people use a lot at the moment is um, about, you know, refugees. When refugees come, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't be taking in too many refugees because yeah. we need to be looking after yeah. our own people here. Yeah. And there was that cartoon, wasn't yeah. there, with a, what looked like a Boris Johnson standing there saying that exact point. We need to look after our own. Yeah. And then there was someone like next to them, like a small person going, um, I'm hungry. Yeah. And then turning around going, fuck off. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. It's the political narrative all around. I mean, it's it's a world thing right now, isn't it? We have become not everywhere, but there is a you know a lot of slant towards being more right towards the right side of things. Whether it's you know America, whether it's India, whether it's that's all happening all across. And I think that's an issue um, because uh, you know people believe in that. You know we're not that far away. I mean, even, what is it, day before yesterday? Yesterday, they were discussing, there were some doctors talking about anti-abortion, right? In the BMA, uh, you know, annual conference. And I'm going like, oh my Lord, you know, what, what is going on? So, so yeah, it's, it's just a weird, uh, interesting world that you have to battle through at the moment. Mm. I think, and I think that's it as well. Like sometimes when you come across these discussions, mm. there's that assumption that everyone is starting at that same 
yeah. at the same starting point. Whereas right. actually, so many people are not. You know, a no. lot of people are far, far, far behind, and some people are far, far ahead. And yeah. good on them. Yeah. But making that assumption uh, means that you're going to miss when when you're targeting this conversation and discussion mm-hmm. about these kinds of issues, whether it be racism. Yeah. Uh, social uh, deprivation, you know, uh, wages, abortion, so on and so forth. You, you, you can get yourself into trouble and tie yourself in knots by basically, basically making that assumption that, yeah. oh, we're all starting at the same point same before point, we carry on. But you're clearly not. No. And I think also there is this, I think there is this philosophy of, I think people are more confident in giving their views, whether they have the facts or not. I think that 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 that's a modern world philosophy. That I'll, I'll put my fa- I'll put my thoughts out there, and that is it. And I think the nuance about saying I'm open to some other views has really changed over the years because I think it's very much like, and I think George Bush coined it best: "You with me or are you against me?" There is no middle ground left anymore. So either you believe it or you're totally against me, and thereby you're in my enemy camp. And that sort of thing has. Really, really, which is a shame because, you know, if you look at us as medics, we are trained to sort of have that open minded culture towards science where you go like, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure you remember. I mean, I would remember as, as a house officer being told that if you didn't, you know, giving a beta blocker to a heart failure was like you were you were killing them. It was like you would be thrown out of ward rounds. And nowadays, if you didn't do it, you'd be thrown out of ward rounds. So, you know, that's science, how it evolves and everything. But there we go. Yeah, absolutely. Um so tell us a little bit, I know it's a little bit drier, but I'm sure because you're a specialist in endocrinology, I think you'll probably find it very interesting. Tell us a little bit about your national role for diabetes, because you also do quite a lot of stuff on that. And I see, you know, interesting information coming out from your Twitter feed yeah, along I mean, those lines. I'd probably mention the thing that is probably of interest to everybody. I think, you know, diabetes, if you remember, you know, somewhere uh, in the 70s, uh, diabetes, if you had to check your, how is your diabetes, you had to dip your urine. And then in the 80s, that changed over to, you know, having to prick your finger. And nowadays in the modern world, you shouldn't have to do that because you've got technology, just like, you know, we have got Apple Watches and picks up our heart rate. We've got technology where it picks up our glucose. And I think that's been a fundamental part of my work, which is about trying to get that into people's lives. We start with type 1 because obviously they type 1 diabetes because also obviously they need insulin to live. So we are at a point where I think nearly 70% or 75% of people now are on our way from glucose pricking their fingers. And that's taken some time. I mean, that in itself is a show in its own self, having to battle with CCGs, trying to explain data, going through NICE. But that was, that's been a fantastic ride and journey to get here at this point, whereby you can turn around and say, right, we got this into the population. So that's great fun. And uh, the other thing probably is of interest, very Star Trek-like, is artificial pancreas. You know, you've got a pump which talks to the sensor. They do calculations of its own and gives your insulin. Sounds amazing. So just a huge move away from the world where you have to calculate your numbers and give your insulin. So that's been a big part of the work. I think the other fun bit, which I probably would mention, was uh, I led a program which is called Getting It Right First Time, as I said, uh, which was about looking at variations within clinical units. I'll tell you what, I don't know about variations in clinical units. I tell you, car parks, my God, there are some variations around this country. I just brought back flashbacks from my training days, me just going around different car parks. Jeepers. Well, I mean, I was, I was funny uh, in the sense of going around the country, meeting lots of your colleagues and uh, talking about, it's, I'll try and understand the issues of how difficult it is for many people. So 
those were the fun bits, I would say, uh, in the diabetes role. And, you know, that's been quite good to lead those things, I would say. Yeah, I, lo- I love the history of medicine. As people who have listened to the podcast will know, um, I even interviewed a historian of the history of medicine previously as well, mm. uh, because I find it so fascinating. And one of the conditions that has changed, I mean, it's dogged humanity since the beginning of history is diabetes. People have known about it for thousands of years, but it's only really in the last 100, 150 years or so that any kind of significant advances has occurred. And now it's almost happening you know, every few years or so, there's a new yeah. development. Yeah. And, you know, and diabetes has gone from being the a terminal diagnosis, mm. especially type 1 diabetes, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Type 1 diabetes was a terminal diagnosis oh, to now being, yeah. oh, you know, you can basically live your life as normal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, and, you saw Glastonbury, somebody playing with the device on, a hand back, you know, all of it. You're absolutely right. And, I think type 2 diabetes has gone to the whole, oh, we can prevent it, and the whole debate about diets, and that, that's it. That's a whole different kettle of fish on social media and the battle about that. But in the world of everybody else, it sort of exploded into names with tongue twisters, really. You know, you you see patients on drugs, you go like, my God, how do you even pronounce this? I don't even know how it works. And that's what's happened. So obviously, industry have cottoned on. It's a big market. So lots of research, lots of drugs in that space as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it is a is a fascinating, almost social, uh, uh, social lens, the hmm. management of diabetes and diabetes hmm. care. Yeah. Um, because obviously, you would have also been privy to the stories of how diabetes is managed across the pond in America. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, that that healthcare system that's soon to be upon us. Yes. Indeed. Uh, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And, you know, I remember learning as a medical student mm. the importance of insulin. I mean, it, it's funny because it's one of those things that I never really appreciated until I got older and I got into medicine. And you know, it, it, and insulin itself is as important as oxygen and water is to life and then you get the situations like in America where people are, are rationing. Yeah. their insulin because they can't afford their prescriptions and you just kind of think it, it, it's almost the same as if you're saying you're rationing their water rationing yeah. their clean yeah. air you it, it couldn't be allowed but because it's a medicine somehow people are being allowed to die in these like terrible situations it's, it, it's heartbreaking really? isn't it oh it's a crazy world isn't it i mean you have that whole i mean america is i just don't understand america's health system to be honest i mean we go to international meetings and I always say Americans come up and say, oh, and we're like, well, you know, you know what? I'm very happy to take a lecture from the Scandinavian countries as to what we can do better. Not from you guys, as you said, you know, first of all, make insulin free, then we'll chat. So, um, you know, I'm very happy to take ideas from other countries about workforce and what they do. But yeah, so it, it is a, uh, it's just one of those things. Funnily enough, all of this, the, the concept of one size fits all and we can do it, it has started to percolate from the States across to the UK when you look at things like diet, right? And pe- the, the debate always is, oh, you should try this, you low carb and low fat and Mediterranean, this and that. And you sit there and I, as a policy role, you sit there and look at all the data and you go like, well, the best diet in the world is the one you can afford. I mean, everything else is completely irrelevant. And you have a debate, you go to meetings and people will say, well, I don't understand this logic about affordability because you can have mackerel at nothing. And I went like, well, nobody's going to have mackerel every day, right? 
tinned mackerel for lunch and dinner for the rest of your life. That's a stupid statement to make. But I think that sort of view also comes from people with that degree of privilege who will never have seen it. So they're thinking, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand why you can't have bacon and avocado for breakfast. Well, because half of the population never heard of avocado or probably seen it in a store from far. So, you know, that's the problem with the debate. And that sort of binary debate is is a very states, United States concept. Of, well, if you can't afford it tough, right, well, then you die. And that, that concept worryingly starting to come through a lot whereby we should be focusing and I always say, if you want to unlock the magic button of, oh, how can we tackle obesity? Well, tackle deprivation. Right? Start there. That's what you need to do. So, yeah, there we go. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is a conversation that's veering towards a subject that's very close to my heart as well mm-hmm. around diet. And I don't know if you know this, but I actually mm-hmm. I am plant-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been plant-based for a long time for various mm. reasons which I mm. won't go into now because mm. I've been into them before mm. but you're absolutely right when it comes to discussions around affordability and quality of food because we get foods which are highly enriched highly bad for you mm. massive amounts of calories yeah. and they cost less than a food that literally you just pick off a tree and put onto your plate. You know what I mean? It, 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 logically, it makes no sense. Obviously, it does make sense from a capitalistic um, industrialization point of view, but it still doesn't make any kind of logical humanitarian sense that a lettuce and a cucumber cost more than a bag we, here of crisps, which will give you 2,000 calories versus, like, you know... So we did this exercise, uh, you know, a few years back, one of our uh, trainees came up and said, I'm really struggling to get a project, as you do. I don't want to do a QI pro, I want to do this. So we said, I tell you what, why don't you go down to the Cosham High Street, which is in Portsmouth, and do a survey about the cheapest food, healthy and otherwise. Now, guess what? It absolutely blazed any healthy options out of the market. And this is Cosham, which is quite a poor area. And he's sitting there going like, well, the cheapest thing over there to get was for 20, what was it, for, at that time, it was 32p. You could get a packet of really crappy chips in it. And, and you're going like, well, that's the reality, right? So, and I think that is such, as you said, such encapsulates the thing. And that's where the diet thing breaks down. It's about that side of things. So, yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, uh, you know and it speaks to a unfortunate attitude which has pervaded our political establishment as well. You know, you have the bootstrap cook being uh, yeah, mocked yeah. for what she does by Tory MPs saying, of course you can feed a family of five on 30p a day. Um, look, I've done it with, you know, uh, half a dozen professional chefs in an industrial kitchen. Yes. So <laughs> surely you can. I mean, yes. just, the reality of it is just so different for people. Privilege is a, privilege is a fantastic thing uh, in the sense of, and I think, you know, we all have privileges. I'm not, I'm not denying I have my own privilege, absolutely. But it is it is quite fascinating to sit here and listen to people say, Say that, and you go like, okay, that, but why are you lecturing people on something you have absolutely zero experience? Of? There you go. Such it is. Yeah, it's and it's it's the absolute lack of awareness mm. as well. Not it's the lack of awareness of your privilege. Mm. Like you said, you know you have privilege. I have privilege. You know, mm. as a cis het male. Yeah. Um, regardless of my skin colour, I already yeah. know that I carry a whole huge amount of yeah. privilege, yeah. and that gives me responsibility. But I'm aware of that. 
which yeah. is what's important mostly. Mm. Um, and I think it's the lack of awareness in our leadership strata, the people who have decided that they are capable enough, whether we agree with it or not, that are capable enough to actually lead us in mm. this discussion in Parliament, yeah. are coming up with such utter, utter dross. So, so obviously belying their lack of awareness, it's uh, it's it, 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 it's almost mind blowing, isn't it? Oh, it, it's it's just a fascinating, fascinating is probably not the right word, but you know, from a history, we'll probably judge it as a fascinating period of time. I mean, at the moment, it's just desperately sad as to where where we stand, and I think it's a question of you know what what we want to do as a society going forward where we are taking ourselves forward that's important to sort of i think uh, us to realize and understand as you said you know we all become whoever was I having this conversation with many years ago this Indian doctors shouldn't be politicians doctors should stay away from politics you should just do your job and go away but healthcare is political i think in this country it is right you know if you're paying from taxpayers funds it's it's political choice as to what you want to do so straight away you're in it and if you want to just do your job, and I, I say this in the world of, for example, technology. So let me give you an example. So we do a lot of data. And what we found was a black child has half the chance of a white child of getting the technology. Same departments, right? And this, so when we pulled the data, obviously, you have the first cut of the defensive reaction, which is like, well, are you calling me a racist? No, well, I'm not really. I'm just showing you the data as it is. They may not be coming to see you. So you need to find out where they are coming rather than, but you have decided, I'm just going to see who turns up in front of me. You're not taking the response. And now that you know the data, if you don't have the awareness to correct it, you need to think what that makes you, right? That's the challenge for you. So I think that's where we're at, is having that discussion to go like, this is a problem based on where we are. And if you say, I don't do politics, mate, I just see people who come to me. Well, then you are just making inequalities worse and you have a responsibility in making them better. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it it kind of falls into that classic ex- uh, answer that you get from people who think that they're not being racist by saying mm. things like, I don't see colour. Yeah. And they go, well, that's bullshit. Because yeah. the data shows yeah. that maybe you are saying you don't see colour, but yeah. where you're working, the institution, the processes, everything around you is definitely seeing colour. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we, we have it all the time. I mean, I remember... When I wrote my first, so I, I've written now a number of BMJ blogs on race. When I wrote my first one, I remember getting an email from one of our surgical consultant colleagues at about 10.30 at night. Clearly not the time to send emails and he might have been on something else to sort of encourage him. And there was an email which basically said, I cannot believe this sort of, you know, you your views disgust me, etc., etc." So I looked at it and you're calling us all racist. I am never racist. I have never seen it. It's a bit like saying I have never right seen uh for example messi playing football so messi doesn't exist sort of thing and you go like well so and the consequence of that and i always talk a lot nowadays about consequences and i think we need to be in positions where you say do you know what so the response to that was i just basically pinged that reply back and thanks very much for your wonderful observation on my blog i've copied in your medical director and stuff for their opinions and stuff i don't think that's appropriate uh, about this and uh, he then sort of backed down and obviously you know they had a chat without coffee with the MD and all that but it, it's just fascinating to see that people would come out with that and as you said it's a bit like so we had the same thing during the Me Too movement isn't it which is like people going like oh I can't believe you're saying that all men are sexist and I go like no no it's not about you mate it, it's plenty of evidence it's happening 
it's great if you are not and you're doing the right things. Probably when you're out with your colleagues, you encourage others to do it or pick up stuff and talk about it. And I, I tell you what, uh, last eight, nine months, however long I've done this job, it, this, it, it, this, is the, this is like it, it's like being genuinely being on Groundhog Day. Go like, <laughs> I'd like to tell you I don't see color. And I go like, yeah, but your organization data suggests there's something not right. So yeah. what's going on? So yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's that uh, it's that classic um, quote, isn't it? For if your if your data um, doesn't fit your theory, then your theory is wrong, not the data. Yes, like <laughs> you you need to adjust your theory yes. and your beliefs, not yes. the numbers. The numbers aren't lying. <laughs> but that's what. But you see. That's been a, such a powerful way to do it. When we have been trying to push for technology in diabetes, people would go like, oh, we are, we are doing very well. And you go like, okay, the number is 2%. I would suggest 2 is quite low. And they're going like, is it really? I said, well, it's your day. Uh, 2 is low. You have to agree with that. <laughs> so they're going like, okay. So, yeah, so that's the thing. You have. To, I think that's mm. where data is so very important as well. Oh, absolutely, because it's subjectivity has been such a broad part of yeah. what we've been doing historically mm. in medicine mm. Mm. Uh, but now we've got to this era of evidence-based medicine mm. and yes evidence can be manipulated yeah. and there are poor studies out there and so on yeah. and so forth but it's it, it's the fact that when you have repeated evidence you have uh, experiments that have been repeated data that shows a similar kind of pattern you can't to then stand in the way of it and say, oh, no, it's still not like that. It's, it's just, that's then, like you said, it, that is it, the time when it's actually demonstrating your bias. Absolutely. If, you, if you're going to turn, and I've had, it's, so far about if I'm very honest, this is exactly what we did, So we, or we'd be faced. When I showed the data about the whole thing about, okay, here's the data about access, about black children and white children. It's coming from your department. The first thing was, uh, I think you need to redo the data and I always have said data purpose has got four purposes in life number one show there's a problem number two consolidate there's a problem number three then you convince others there needs to be investment to sort it number four is track the progress and with anything to do with race or sex in this country we are very much stuck at the number two or three which is let's consolidate it a bit more or oh we may need more data to convince some more and you go like I'm not quite sure at what point in time you go like I'm done now mm -hmm. the only purpose of data is to show yeah. progress stop saying I need more data and I think th that's the fundamental thing is that whole cycle that people put you into go and get some more and some mm. more and some more if you like okay fine yeah yeah I, I feel that a lot of that getting stuck in that consolidate the data loop mm. Mm. is um, the dismissive attitude oh. that is oh, uh, it, it, that, it, that is being that is being shrouded in reasonableness yeah. And I've said this a load of time when it comes, and I've said it in the last podcast when we talked about racism before, mm. people shroud yeah. their true beliefs yeah. in this thin veil of reasonableness. Oh, right. And it, then then what happens is when people like yourself or myself or whoever it is that goes, mm. no, actually, mm. you need to stop this and you need to start <laughs> looking. Then they go, oh, why are you being aggressive? Yeah. Why are you being... Uh, <laughs> It's a classic trope, isn't it? The aggressive uh, Asian man and the aggressive uh, black person. It's the it's the usual trope because no, I'm going to know. I'm just challenging what you were saying. It's it's the whole thing which I always talk about, 
and uh, it was said by uh, you know the, cor- the whole thing about unconscious bias, just a corporate construct to make people feel a bit better about their racism. Oh, I didn't know. So I was in a meeting the other day, and someone said, "Oh, we need to tackle unconscious bias in uh, in racism." And I said, "Well, to be honest, if in 2022 you still are unconscious about racism, then you may need a CT head, right?" That's what you need. You don't need to go on a course. I mean, that's just stupid to say, I didn't know that was a racist thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things which it's a beautiful shroud or a cover. I mean, there are many terms like this, isn't it, in the NHS, which people like to do that. Is that other unconscious bias? And there's lots of other terms like that. And I just yeah. feel like, don't understand all that. Just crack on. When you turn it around and use an examples like I sometimes use is um, there is no one alive today who is smoking that doesn't know that smoking is bad for them. Yeah, there's there's no point. There's no one that's out there like puffing away going, "What you mean smoking causes cancer?" Yeah, <laughs> no one can claim that to be true, and yet for some reason for these social issues, yeah. people still seem to think that no. It doesn't exist here. Yeah. It couldn't possibly exist here. Well, it, it doesn't have to be racism. Racism, sexism, ableism, all of the isms I, that are I, just I, so evident. But I think people we, are just ignoring its existence. But I think it's also because we're caught in that bind. Because we love the NHS so much, we will no, hear no evil of it. And I think there's that whole thing. Is that So when you say that, are you, oh, you, can't, you can't denigrate our jewel in the crown. And you go like, I'm not. I'm just saying that we have a problem just like society. And we had this data and I was at a meeting with medical directors recently and they were going, oh, yes, absolutely. GMC referrals, when you tackle it, it's a bias. And I said, guys, and then they said, oh, what do they say? We also need to tackle what comes from the public. And I said, OK, let's make this very clear. The bias exists in NHS staff, not in the public. The bias is coming from us, Right. It, it, that's where it's coming from. Absolutely. So, it, so we need to do ourselves before we look at point at the public and say, oh my God, the public are all just, actually it isn't. It's the system, it's the leadership and it's the whole nuance around it. So it, it's that whole thing that we have where we go like, oh, I can't have any evil about the NHS. And if you say mm. that, maybe you're contributing to it being privatized. And you go like, no, that's two completely separate debates, right? So this has got nothing to do with it. So, and finally, I would say is that, and I've said this many, many times, NHS staff is a reflection of our broader society. If you've got sexism, homophobia, racism, uh, anti-Semitism, all of that exists there, that will exist here, right? Islamophobia, they all exist in the same quotient here. And, you know, people don't put on a NHS badge and suddenly develop superpowers and suddenly all their bias disappears. That's not how it works. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think this is something that happens quite a lot, not just with the NHS, but things like patriotism as well. There's this is this fetishism mm-hmm. of the uh, admired thing. So mm-hmm. whether it's your country or the NHS or who, whatever it is, that there's this idea that they can do no wrong. And in fact, not only can they not do wrong, everything they do, because they're perfect, is correct. It's correct. Which is, which is the, that isn't love. Love is not that. Love, like if you love someone, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't be so obsessed with them that if they go down the wrong path, say, become addicted to drugs and things like that, that you'll say, oh no, the fact that they do drugs is good because they do it. You wouldn't say that. That's not love. Love is saying, mate, don't do that. That's not good for you. And look, I will support you through it. 
That's that's what caring and love actually is. The opposite side of it, the 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 complete denial that there could possibly be even the slightest bit wrong with something. Mm. <laughs> that is the fetishism, and that is completely unhealthy. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's where we are caught, and we are caught about anything. You know, for example, I mean, you know, for example, you take anything that's going on with the health system, right? And I think we're we're caught in that very binary debate of any controversy or any criticism of the NHS equates to we are destroying the NHS. And you go like, no, we love this, which is why we need to do it, correct it and make it better, which is what you would do with a loved one, as you absolutely beautifully put. Uh, yeah, and that that's an analogy I might steal and use somewhere. You're more than welcome to use it. Um, <laughs> it's it's a it's a discussion and a topic which is far ranging and yeah. has a lot more implications than just for healthcare, obviously. Yeah. And we could be talking about it for you know Ages. hours and hours and hours, yeah. years even. I suspect that if we spoke again in ten years' time, these topics would still be coming up. Hopefully, oh. a little bit less with improvement, but but. Let's move on a little bit now from those national roles and what we do and the racism and all that and talk a little bit about yourself, Partha. Mm. So one of the things I like to talk about is what people do for fun outside mm. of their kind of professional roles, just to kind of get a bit of a rounded idea of the person rather than just the person that, you know, the, the persona. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, I'm not married to my job. I always said that, uh, you know, people always go, oh, my God, does that mean it's not a vocation? And I'm like, well, that's a separate debate. But I don't think it's a mutually exclusive thing, right? Uh, you don't have to be like, you know, I don't know, maybe Mother Teresa or whatever to do a good job. You can do your job, go go to your job, do 110%, come back and relax and have your drink or have your family, have your dogs and all of that. So I think for me, that's very important. So I... My weekends are very important. My holidays are incredibly important. And uh, I think that's one of the first things I do. So there's one thing I do is at the beginning of the year, I not only book my holidays, I put what I call, what I call uh, it's a bit like Easter eggs. So I put sort of surprise holidays here and there, like a day off here and there with suddenly springs on you and you go, oh my God, I've got a holiday coming up. That's lovely. So, and I like that to take the break and I try not to let it, um, you know, flow into my personal life. Uh, you know, I love my Netflix time, my time with my family, my kids, family, dogs, everything. Love my comic books. Love, love my movies. I'm a massive movie buff, so I will always make time to go out for the big, big, you know, big, big ones. And I'll always be on Netflix or Amazon catching up. So uh, relaxation for me is very important. And, uh, to be honest, anybody listening, uh, I think if, if there's two tips I always give is that always, always have time for your loved ones. And they include your friends and stuff. All because they, they just make you happy, right? So be with them. And uh, the other one, I always say, don't take yourself too seriously. So uh, that, that's my motto in life, because, you know, you, you will fall on your own hype eventually, if you believe yeah. so Yeah, I like that. So you, you mentioned Netflix there. So what are you binging these days? Well, I finished Lincoln Lawyer, which was really good. I really like Lincoln Lawyer. So that's finished. And I've just seen on Amazon... There's a new Chris Pratt thing come out as well. So I'm just on the lookout for different... You know what happens with Netflix? You start off on something with hope and then two episodes you're going like, this is quite shit. <laughs> so, so you have to do the trial and run as you go along. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And then uh, what did I see recently, which is quite good? It was a Korean one. It was called Silent Sea. That was really good. It was space uh, in... Mar- it, was, it was completely wacky and out there, but it was, it was a good horror thing. It was quite good. Okay, that's interesting. That's the kind of thing I would like. So, Silent Sea. Oh, 
Valency. That was that was yeah, that was quite scary. And it was I mean by the end it lost every single sense of reality. But it's definitely worth a watch. The journey is the important bit in things yeah. like that, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, and um, so you say you enjoy your movies as well. I actually watched a movie last night. Um, it was the sequel to Prometheus, um, Aliens Covenant. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, have yeah. you seen that? No, I didn't hear great reviews over that one. Prometheus itself bored me to death nearly. Yeah, because none of them have been able to touch any of the former glories of them. You no. know, whether it's Alien, Terminator, nobody's been able to get anywhere close anywhere. So, no. I agree, I agree. I actually, at the end of it, um, because it leads directly on to, in, in terms of the timeline, mm. it leads directly on to the original Alien movie. Okay. So All I right. actually moved on to that. Yeah. And just the first 20 minutes of that, just... it blows out of the water <laughs> in the <laughs> Prometheus. <laughs> Alien Covenant. So good. So good, so good. No, absolutely. It's, it's. I've seen that the Predator movie. They have now brought a prequel out to it called Prey, and I'll, I'll watch it. But because just because of the nostalgia. But I was even the other night. I, I sort of you watch something of the old Predator, and you go like, bloody hell, that was really good. It was completely out out of the you know out of any zone. But wow, wasn't that good? So, yeah. It's so good. You're absolutely right. And what's funny is when you when you remember those movies, yeah. often what you're doing is you're being nostalgic about oh, the time absolutely. of your life as well. But that's I, why it, Top, Top Gun's been such a big hit because of that. All, a lot of us in the eighties, like, oh yeah, I can remember that. It's great for the modern audience, but for, for a lot of people in the eighties, going like, oh yeah, okay, I, wow, he's done a good and topped off of the cap to that. So it was beautifully done from that point of view. So. So I think re- recreating 80s magic is not easy, which is why I would never want anybody to redo Back to the Future or things like that. You know, just just leave them alone. Don't touch it. Just eat yeah. the jaws. Just leave them. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do worry about that because you see so many of these things being rebooted because yeah. they're obviously popular back in the day, and then there's a whole bunch of people now yeah. who loved them as kids, and now they're kind of you know paying adults. So yeah. now we've got a, that's another market to exploit, and it's so marketing driven. A lot of oh, these like reboot ideas, and it's, it it becomes painful, doesn't it? Oh, it's uh, absolutely. But I have. But like you said, I've I've heard good things about this Top Gun. I've not seen it yet. Oh, um, well, man, I would tell you what. I mean, it brings all the nostalgia back in a row. I mean, <laughs> if I've ever seen a movie which is connected back to the original, uh, in the sense, you know, we're talking about all Alien Covenant and Prometheus and going like, Jesus Christ, man, why, why did you do that? It's even the, even Ridley Scott and you go like, Jesus, man, what, what happened to you? And but <laughs> Top Gun, you, genuinely does all the tick boxes of nostalgia you want so yeah definitely okay there's definitely one to watch then all right that's a good one (sighs) Partha we're coming towards the end of our time together now and it's been fantastic I love I've I've loved talking to you you've got so much energy and so much enthusiasm for everything it's 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 brought me back to life after a bit of a bit of a uh, pedestrian morning for me um Um, Let's let's be honest. You you do a specialty. I don't know if you ever heard a podcast. I did a podcast for Kings Fund where I, I I got in trouble because I went in there and said. So I think the Kings Fund person asked me, "What would you do if you had differential pay?" And I said, "Well, in my book, I think three groups of people just should be paid more than diabetologists, for example." And I said, "Well, people who work in ED, people who are pediatricians, and people who are, and GPs, I think they just should be paid more than." You know, yeah, I, I find it silly that a diabetologist would get paid the same as an ED physician, just simply with the workload. 
And, oh, Jesus, I got a lot of grief. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to hear any criticism from me. And I, I, no, I, I generally we, believe that. I mean, your workload is crazy. Yes. I mean, come on. I mean, there's no comparison to what I do. So, uh, you know, it's as straightforward as that. So uh, <laughs> I've always had a lot of time and respect for what you guys do. So, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. It's very kind to hear. Um, I, and I hope uh, some more of our colleagues uh, <laughs> agree with that. Yeah. Oh, dear. But coming to the end, I always ask every uh, guest on this show one specific question. Mm. And it, I leave it up to the guest to interpret it and answer it any way they like. Uh, and we've had some really interesting responses to it. Very, very uh, and always quite surprising. But the question is this. What is the strangest thing you have ever experienced? Ooh. Okay. So strangest thing I've ever experienced, I have to go back in time a little bit, which was when my uh, granddad passed away. So this is the strangest experience, right? So I was obviously very little, and my granddad had put in an order for a new car. Right, that was his wish because it was a very poor, came from a really poor background. Put an order for a new car, and basically the car arrived. Right, and it was a Suzuki Maruti. I still remember this. This was done with a Japanese company in Calcutta. That was a big deal. But my granddad died two weeks before it got delivered. Right, so my dad was like, "Oh, it's really shame." And you know, my dad would have loved it. Very emotional, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, what happened is that, and that's just coincidence or luck or whatever the hell it was. That car had so much trouble when we started taking the new car. To the extent, a window just fell off, right? It just came off and nearly landed near the car. And then the tire got punctured and this and that. So my dad then went like, right, I'm going to take this car to where my dad used to live, put his picture in the car and drive him around the village. We used to live in a very sort of backward uh, rural area. He did that. And I am not kidding. For 17 years, we had that car. and grew up with that car, right? We never had a single problem. That was a sheer coincidence. But till this day, my dad tells me that was because he took the picture of his dad around a ride in the village. How's that for a strange experience? <laughs> that, that is brilliant. What I love about it is how it's still ongoing as well. Oh, how, yeah. like, the <laughs> 17 years. I yeah. love it. That's a great story. Thank you. Oh, that's marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, your 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 granddad finally got you yeah, know the car, car he wanted. Yeah, I mean, I don't care what yeah. if yeah. if anyone ever explains that for any other reason. It's yeah. just pure coincidence. I don't oh, care. I prefer yeah. your interpretation. Oh, of it. it's brilliant. I still love. <laughs> my, oh, my dad still believes it. So I go like, okay, all right then. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, um, it's clearly true. The evidence is in. Part the evidence is in. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again for your Pleasure, time, Partha. Right. Is there anything else, any any final no, 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 thoughts you want you. to share at all? Great invite, and at some point we should actually catch up face to face. That would be great. So that we that would be lovely. That would be right. lovely. Cool. Okay. All right, man. Thank Take you care. so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. I've been your host at. Emergency Bod on Twitter, Dr. Farbod. If you're enjoying the shows, feel free to buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the echo chamber. I promise to share the proceeds with our producer, Silent Ben. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care.